Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of The Articulate Fly. On this episode, I'm joined by Steelhead Alley OG, Jeff Blood. We take a deep dive into all things Steelhead Alley, the fishery, the gear, the tactics, and everything in between. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. But before we get to the interview, just a couple of housekeeping items. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a rating and review in the podcatcher of your choice. It really helps us out. And as we continue to create and distribute more diverse content, you may want to consider downloading our iOS or Android app. We organize our content by category so you can go straight to the content that interests you the most. The apps are free and the links are in the show notes. Alternatively, just search the Articulate Fly where you get your mobile apps. Now, on to the interview. Well, Jeff, welcome to the Articulate Fly. Well, thanks for the invitation. I'm uh, glad to catch up with you and talk again. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, I don't know that we either of us want to confess how long it's been since we met each other. Well, it's, it's been a while back. Uh, we were on Cataraugus Creek. I remember watching you and a couple of your fishing buddies catching uh, a lot of fish. Yeah, a big steelhead. I I remember that. I also remember skating around a fair amount on that shale too because I didn't have studs in my boots. <laughs> Lesson learned, right? It, yeah, I've I've got plenty of <laughs> screws in my box now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all do. Yeah. <laughs> Some in my head too, though. Yeah, there you <laughs> go. Well, you know, Jeff, we have a tradition on the articulate fly. We always ask all of our guests to share their earliest fishing memory. Yeah, so. Mine is very clear. Um, I grew up in Erie County on a little farm pond that was dug along Interstate 90 when they were building the highway. They used the dirt to build the pond, and it was stocked with bluegill, bass, bullheads. And my older brother, who was 15 years older than me, bought me a uh, casting rod. It was a uh, a new fiberglass with the multi really bright colors, if you remember those. And my brother, two years older than me, was also fishing with a new rod. He was catching bluegills one after another. I couldn't catch them. And I finally hooked one that was a huge three and a half inches. And rather than crank, I decided to sprint backwards and drag it out on the bank. And I'm going to make a comment about that, that I was so thrilled to catch that fish. And, uh, you know, 62 years later, because I'm 66 now, I still have that same enthusiasm as the first time I caught that little bluegill. So that's my memory. Yeah, that's awesome. And uh, when did you come to the dark side of fly fishing? <laughs> well, you know, uh, I had four older brothers. They... Uh, Three of them were 10 years and older than me. So by the time I was old enough to fish, they were all driving. And the great thing about that is they loved to hunt and fish. So I got to, to go lots of places, you know, locally, trout fishing and, you know, bow and arrow fishing for carp and all that type of thing. Uh, my oldest brother <clears throat> had a fly rod. That's how he preferred to fish. Tied a few flies, you know, uh, was okay at it but that's how he wanted to fish. So I would uh, sneak his rod out during the day while he was at work and uh, catch bluegills and whatever. But I would always get my spinning rod out to fish for bass and so on and so forth. 
at the age of 18, um, I just put my spinning rod away. I had built my own fly rod and never looked back. Um, you know, if you lay rods down and say, you know, pick one of the rods you want to fish, no matter where I'm at in the world, I'm going to pick up the fly rod. That's what I love to do. Yeah, that's pretty neat. And back then it was no small feat to build your own rod. <laughs> it was. It actually was a huge mountain just to buy hooks. <laughs> People don't realize uh, what we didn't have back then or access to. Growing up where I grew up, I don't think there was a fly shop within 100 miles or maybe even more. And uh, the herders catalog, if you remember herders, they were out in uh, South Dakota, um, was, was like, uh, you know, the candy store of all things. And I would go in there and you know, have my wish list and uh, but never enough money to buy, you know, what I needed. So it was a, a long, slow process developing as a fly fisherman. Um, but, you know, that was part of the intrigue. Yeah, it's funny you say that because, I mean, you know, for all of us that kind of came of age before the Internet, you know, the, and also, too, quite honestly, I mean, everyone having a credit card is a relatively recent phenomenon. And so, you know, I can just remember, like, asking my mom to write checks for very small amounts of money to mail somewhere to get something. Yeah, well, that, that's the way it was back then. <clears throat> you know, the beauty of the Internet today is the younger guys can teach themselves or watch a video, learn how to tie a fly. You know, we had to try to read a book. In most cases, we couldn't. We had to, like, buy a fly in, in a shop somewhere and bring it home and kind of deconstruct it to figure out what it is. So, um, <clears throat> you know, that's, that's the benefit of the Internet today. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, obviously you've been in the sport for a, quite a while. Who are some of the folks that have mentored you on your fly fishing journey and what have they taught you? Well, you know, that, that list is pretty extensive. Uh, the pinnacle of that would be Lefty Cray. Um, I think lots of people in the industry can say that about Lefty. I had the good fortune of meeting Lefty in 1978 at an event, um, west of Pittsburgh where I live and um, about an hour's drive, maybe a little longer. Lefty was there doing his typical casting demonstration and I happened to be there with a friend of mine who owned the local fly shop at the time and uh, when we got back he said, you know, I'm going to call Lefty up and see if he will come and help us with our schools and uh, he did and then I was um, you know, tagging along as, as a quasi-instructor. Uh, at the time, uh, you know, I was a high-end intermediate, but every but there were very few experts uh, that we knew. We brought Lefty in, and, uh, you know, Lefty, you know, immediately just uh, caused me to be awestruck in terms of his knowledge and so on and so forth taught me a lot about casting, um, but lots of other things. Lefty was, uh, you know, the pinnacle of our industry. The one thing he left with me that I think is most important and touched my life from my youth was, uh, he said to me one day that excellence whispers. And what he was really saying is, is that people don't need to be 
arrogant and toot their own horn. If you're really good at something, it'll just show that you're good by doing what you do. And so it's more a philosophical thing. The other thing that he taught me was to look deeper, uh, you know, investigate, not to be shallow, one-dimensional in my thinking, but to think beyond just the obvious. So I, you know, put him there. But then um, as far as the, you know, that that's more the philosophical aspect of it. <clears throat> but a lot of the guides on the Bighorn River, um, I fished the Bighorn River the first time in 1982 and then went back out and we fished it uh, with a guide out of George Anderson's fly shop because there were no fly shops in the area. I think the Bighorn Trout Shop opened up in 1985, and then Mike Craig's place uh, shortly after. But I ended up guiding the river with Mike Craig, uh, Jim Lowry, a guy they called Stretch, Brad Downey, and uh, Clint Horsley. And between them, the collective knowledge of um, leader design, casting, fly time, all those, um, you know, indicator fishing. To that point, I had never indicator fished. And, um, you know, length of rod, they were fishing 10-foot rods before it was even acceptable to fish 10-foot rods. And they all shared that information with me. And, of course, when you go out there, you do that, you bring it back with you. And then when you start having success, your friends around you start saying, hey, what are you doing? And you share it with them. And that's kind of the, the viral or contagious aspect of, of learning in the market. Yeah, that's interesting, too, because, I mean, the, the Bighorn is a great uh, classroom because it will absolutely humble you. It certainly humbled me many times. <laughs> well, I just came off the Bighorn uh, last, what, what did we fish, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Uh, it was as good as I've ever seen it. The fish are extremely healthy. They're 17 to 20 inches. They're fat. They're strong. You can't fish below 4X. You really need to be fishing 3X. The problem is you also have to fish size 20s. And quite frankly, you can't thread the 3X through the, the size 20 eyelet. <laughs> and so you had to go to 4X and and we hooked a lot of fish. We just didn't land that many. <laughs> yeah, very neat. Yeah, the last time I was there, uh, we stayed at Cottonwood Camp, and it was when they were still working on the dam. So the uh, you could do that first uh, float in probably uh, 30 or 45 minutes if you didn't get out and wait a little bit. Yeah, well, that was, what, three years ago they were working on the dam. They had it kind of messed up at the time. Uh, the trico hatch was really good because I fished it then also. But once the trico hatch is over, I mean, the river was dead. And I've never seen it that way. Uh, I fished it almost every year for 25 years. And then I took about 10 years off. And then, because uh, the, the river went through, uh, you know, kind of a downturn. And then they came back. And then, so I decided to go out and fish. And uh, <clears throat> never have I seen it that you can't put on a San Juan worm or a scud and catch fish. And you just couldn't, um, nobody. I mean, it's, it's one thing that's not me doing it or, you know, my boat, but I, there was nobody catching fish and nothing below three miles. So <clears throat> that that's just, you know, when they've got to do what they have to to take care of the dam, it is what it is. 
and that's part of fishing, you know. Yeah, I think that's the great life lesson is you you can only take what the river's willing to give you, right? <laughs> yep, that's, that's what you do. <laughs> it, it, and so kind of coming back to the East Coast, you know, you know you've been really – a fishing steelhead alley from the beginning and you know for those of us that don't really know what it was like before um there was an aggressive introduction of steelhead into the great lakes why don't you let folks know a little bit about the creation of the fishery and kind of how it's evolved over the years yeah so sometime in the 50s i was born in 1954 um there was an article written called steelhead alley i think it was in the field and stream my all of my older brothers talked about the article. They called it Steelhead Alley. In Pennsylvania, you were not allowed to fish in the stream until the first day of trout season, which was always the second Saturday. So if you know anything about Steelhead, they're mostly running prior to that. So anything that was being caught was actually on the tail end of the run. And that's just the point I want to make to people because the fish were running sooner and some were spawning and going out and never really um, able to be fished to. And I caught my first fish, uh, what we call lake run rainbows back then, or lakers is what the local people called them. Uh, not lake trout, which are known as lakers, but, you know, lake run. And <clears throat> I was seven years old. I actually was across from what they call Uncle John's campground today. But on the first day, they would stock trout, uh, you know, by the bridges. So take a bunch of buckets, walk down, dump them by the bridges. And my brother, two years older than me and myself, we couldn't get in where the fish were stocked because all the adults had it all blocked out. So we walked downstream, found a big bunch of suckers, and we didn't care. And we're fishing the suckers, and I actually caught a 24-inch Lake Run rainbow at the age of seven. I caught it on a Zebco 202 on a fiberglass rod. Um, and, you know, that I was the hero because I had this great big huge fish, and all these guys are catching these 9- to 12-inch fish. <laughs> so, you know, it was, it was, I was, I was the big stud of the day, you know. But from there, uh, we started fishing – trout run you were allowed to fish this little tiny i'll call it a, a spring-fed stream not very big you could almost jump across it but it had natural reproduction in it and so uh we would go there again in april and sometimes in may and we would fish and you could see the fish you know they're 30 inches long in a little tiny stream but the the fishery basically was made up of those fish that survived from the stocking in Crooked Creek and in Elk Creek. And those are the only streams I know of that were in Pennsylvania uh, that were that ran directly into the stream in Pennsylvania that were stocked. And then some of the natural reproduction in those small little niche areas like Trout Run, there's a, a little stream called Taylor Creek up off from the West Branch of Conia Creek that has natural reproduction. And then I think uh, Cataraugus Creek, I'm sorry, yeah, Cataraugus Creek definitely had natural reproduction, but not enough to really build a fishery. You know, it was just remnants. Um, and then a guy by the name of Bob Hett, um, he, if you go up there and fish and you see all those um, 
what do I say, shrubs that that they're raising to sell to you know to people. He he uh, he owns all that stuff, and he went to the West Coast and brought um, genetically pure steelhead eggs back here, propagated them, stocked them, and had a phenomenal return of, of steelhead. And the Fish Commission at the time was stocking coho salmon. There was some decision made to quit stocking coho and start stocking steelhead only, and they switched over to that. And I don't know when that was. It was in the 80s. Um, I'm going to say like mid-80s. And the runs back then were phenomenal. The, the crazy thing is, through the 80s and early 90s, I fished in the fall. Most of the fish ran in November. They, so, so right now, we have a ton of fish in the system. I mean, right now. There are hundreds of fish in every pool. Uh, no water. Uh, you know, when we get the first rain, they're going to get rain tomorrow, I guess. They should just tear them up. But they're running earlier and earlier. Um, now, I think that's by design from the Fish Commission so that people can fish for them in better weather. The concern I have is can they sustain the run, though, for a long period of time uh, so that, you know, you can fish in November and December like we traditionally did. But that's, that's what went on in the time I would fish, like the first day of deer season is always in Pennsylvania is always um, after Thanksgiving. So I would go up on Friday after Thanksgiving and I would fish, and literally have the stream to myself. And, you know, each pool has 30 to 50 fish in it. So you'd go in and catch, you know, eight, nine, 10 fish out of one pool and walk down to the next and down to the next. Well, it's, it's, you still catch a lot of fish today. But it's just different because there are a lot of people fishing. It literally is a world-class fishery. It's sometimes taken for granted because to catch the size of fish and as many fish as we catch, we would probably have to spend a minimum of $5,000 going to the West Coast and to Alaska. And you're not going to catch them on the West Coast unless you go into B.C. or Alaska in the numbers that we're catching them. Yeah, and so I know you've got a fall run. Do you also have a spring run like they do on the other side of the Great Lakes? Well, we do. Uh, what I've noticed over my fishing uh, time is that Pennsylvania does not have a very strong spring run. They do get some spring fish, but nothing compared to what Ohio gets. This last year in Ohio was epic. I mean, I, I, uh, 50 fish hookups were easy. Now I'm not saying 50 landed fish cause they were, they were big and there was a lot of wood in the river, but, uh, 50 fish was easy on um, a bunch of days. And like the grand river cooperated this year. Um, they didn't have a ton of rain, which normally blows that river out forever. And, uh, I mean, I've seen periods where it doesn't get fished for three months because you can't get on it. Uh, but all the other systems also had fish. Um, you know, they've got, I think, seven to eight big systems. And actually, the better water is in Ohio, with the exception of the Cattaraugus in New York State. Pennsylvania has small streams with lots of fish in them, but they're small. 
and Ohio's got much more room. They've done a really good job with public access. I mean, just a great job. Like uh, the Ashtabula River, and my understanding of the Ashtabula, the native tongue means river of many fish. They are not. They they cleaned it up. Uh, it had some chemicals in the in the lower portion. They've cleaned that up. They're now stocking it. It was full of fish last year or last spring. And same with Cognac Creek. Cognac Creek is is historically my most favorite stream to fish for steelhead, and I fish it both in Pennsylvania and in Ohio because it it's. Uh, originates in the town of Dixonburg in Pennsylvania and flows north and then cuts uh, west and goes into Ohio. And, um, you know, it's, it's a great fishery. Uh, I would advocate to people if they want to do some great spring steelhead fishing to, to go into Ohio. Yeah, and, and in terms of are there differences uh, kind of around the Great Lakes, say, you know, the Pennsylvania, Ohio steelhead uh, versus uh, steelhead in Michigan and other parts of the Great Lakes, or are they all uh, behave pretty much the same? Well, that's that's controversial, I guess. You know, way back uh, when this program first started, and, and I mean it caught on. They they being the Fish Commission as well as some independent um, organizations brought various strains of. Uh, West Coast steelhead. And so they had pure strains of the Scamania, as an example, which is a long, slender fish. It's a summer-run fish. Uh, uh, in Indiana, That that's their targeted fish, is the Scamania. It's very aerodynamic. Um, it'll jump, you know, as many as 10 or 12 times. And... Um, you know, they had the, uh, the uh, what they call the New London strain in Ohio and then the Manistee strain from Michigan. But I think what they've done is they've mongrelized all of those fish. Um, <clears throat> and now they have a strain in Pennsylvania they call the Trout Run strain because Trout Run is where the uh, fish cultural station is that raises the, the small fish. And um, yeah, it's almost shameful in one sense that they didn't try to keep them pure. I, I think there's a little bit of it going on across the lake because that's all natural reproduction. And it only makes sense that if a certain fish runs with another fish that they match up and, and spawn, which is the concern I have. Our, our fish here are spawning earlier and earlier and earlier. And, you know, we, we've got lots of fish right now. When we have lots of fish, it's tremendous. But, you know, there's a big harvest that goes on. Um, and lots of people like to keep them for their eggs or keep them to, to eat or smoke. And, uh, you know, if you don't have more fish backfilling, then the quality of the fish fishing goes down because the numbers go down. And um, whereas... In Ohio, they're they're getting more of a spring run. They do get a fall run, but they get more of a spring run of fish over there. So, you know, I switch from Pennsylvania and New York in the fall and go mostly to Ohio. <clears throat> now, now, Pontiac Creek has both because Pennsylvania stocks 
on a road called Beaver Center Blacktop in the West Branch. And I think they put they put at least 50, no, I'm, I can't remember the number. It's over 50,000 and it could be as high as 75,000. And then Ohio stocks their strain of fish, which they get or have been getting. I don't know what's going on currently. Fish from um, Michigan. So it's that manistee strain, uh, which is a, a fall run fish. So and the manistees have a tendency to run later, like November, um, and versus the PA fish. So they're kind of creeks getting a slug of all of them. And, um, you know, so you just need to know that to know when and where to go, I guess. Yeah, that's interesting. And, you know, you were talking earlier about, um, I guess, trying to match up, uh, you know, how many fish they're putting in versus how many uh, fish people are harvesting. But, you know, I know there have been some environmental and ecological challenges uh, in Steelhead Alley. You know, what are we looking at today? Well, you know, um, we always want to think that invasive species are bad. I'm going to make a comment. Somewhere throughout history, everything's been invasive, <laughs> you know, and uh, the question becomes, is it good or bad? So when I was, you know, say six, eight, ten years old, my grandmother had a cottage right on the shore of the lake. And if you got a northeast wind, you know, that turns the lake up really bad. And then when that settles out, you know, the lake turns back to nor- normally uh wind either out of the south or out of the west and you, you have your lake clears up but there would be this pasty i don't even know how to explain it uh muck for about anywhere between 20 to 40 feet from the beach that you would have to wade through and it would be like putting vaseline on your body it was grayish green made up of i don't know what dead seaweed and who knows And it was awful. And today, the lake is as clean as you can have a a lake be. Um, You can see down to the bottom in 20 feet of water easily. Uh, The the zebra mussel, I think, is what has done that in the sense of, uh, you know, they're, they're a filter and they filter all that out and help clean it up. The other thing that's occurred is there's been an explosion in bait. And the amount of bait that is in the lake is mind-boggling. I mean, you'll, I've, I've been out uh, with a couple of charter guys. Uh, you know, I, I don't really prefer to troll for anything. It just is, is, you know, the skill is in the captain and cranking in a walleye is like cranking in a shoe. But they eat well. Um, anyway, the... The um, fish finder would, you know, we'd go over a school of bait and it might be three quarters of a mile long and you just, you just keep going and you can't get out of it to the point where your lines, you can see that they're hitting the bait when you're bringing the lines through the, the bait. So that's really good because there's a lot of food out there, even though they estimate now there's 150 million walleye in the lake. Last year, they estimated 60 million. And the year before that was, you know, 30 or 40 million. 
which is still a lot of fish, and it just keeps getting bigger on the walleye. And, you know, that's one of the things that they want to blame the reduced numbers that we've had in the past on um, predation to the smolts. And I would say, okay, you know, I can buy that, but um, I don't think that's what's going on. I think it's something that's going on in the stocking program. And, uh, you know, the question I would have, if you and I ran this as a business, we would look to ourselves first and say, what are we doing or what have we changed? And if we haven't done anything or changed anything, then we got to look outward, right? And going back to when they started stocking upstream, um, 18.5 or 6 miles on Elk Creek, and they're dumping in almost 400,000 fish. By the way, all in pretty much the same spot, which is kind of stupid. Uh and I think there was just a lot of mortality with them the time of year they were stocking and so on and so forth. And what that did is, the reason they did it, let me back up, was to try to keep the Pennsylvania fish from straying out of their system and going over into the Cattaraugus or going over into the Ohio system. But I, what I think they did overall was just reduce the survival rate across the board in the lake because Pennsylvania stocks the most fish. We, we stock over a million. Ohio does around 400,000. And I can't remember what New York is. Don't, don't hold me the exact numbers, but it's like 400,000. So, you know, we're doing almost three times the fish with only 60 miles of, of shoreline. And, uh, you know, when we tinker with that stuff, uh, we can actually mess it up in, you know, just trying to keep all the fish for ourselves it's kind of stupid because one fishermen don't know state lines. We really don't. We go to where the fishing is and the fish definitely don't know state lines and, uh, you know, let nature do what nature does best and, and feed that. So, you know, now this year looks to be like we're going to get really big returns so then the question would be, you know, 150 million walleye in the lake, and we're getting these really big returns, which would point to me to say it's not predation because if it was, they've got the worst chance of surviving that they've ever had with all the walleye. Why are we getting really big returns and what did you change? Or if they didn't change anything, then what went on in the lake? You know, how do we determine that? Now, I'm going to say something in defense of our Pennsylvania Fish, uh, Fish and Boat Commission. I wouldn't want their job because I I do think they they don't have the resources. I mean, they cry that all the time. But I, I, I think it's a tough job to figure it out with the resources that they have. And unlike other states, um, there's no state money that comes to them. Everything comes from licenses and a few other things that they do. I wish the state of Pennsylvania would, would actually fund some of this and we would have, um, you know, just better output. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's always, I don't know. It's, um, I think, uh, I think fishing game everywhere, even if they're better funded than maybe they are in Pennsylvania, always have a challenge. Always. 
and somebody's always not happy. And I've said this to a lot of my friends. We, we have a tendency to bitch about things. And what I say to them, every, it's easy to bitch. It's really hard to come up with a solution. And so there's a time for you to quit bitching and start helping. And so that's what I'm trying to do now, you know, is look at it and say, you know, how can I help? Yeah, it's interesting you say that because my tactic with the complainers is to always offer them a seat on whatever board or committee I'm involved with, and it usually <laughs> takes care of the problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, uh, so, it's pretty much a cure-all for complaining. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, there's, a, there's a lot of people that care out there, and, you know, they're doing, they're doing good things. I mean, the Fish Commission is, is trying, um, you know, they're trying to get us more access. Uh, you know, Ohio's got a better system. It's, it's funded by local government and by state government. They've got tremendous public access. Uh, I mean, place I fish on the Grand, they've got a bathroom that's clean twice a day. They've got pavilions to sit down and change your wares. It's uh, just beautiful. And lots of... Uh, you know, stream access. And, um, you know, the, the question is, where's Pennsylvania? Where? So our, you know, state park system and the uh, DC and NR or whatever they call it um, needs to kind of wake up to Erie County and look at the amount of tourism that's coming in there and say, well, how can we help? Because there's a lot of people coming up there to fish. Yeah, absolutely. And talking about the fishing, you know, one of the things I remember uh, when we first met and we were fishing Cataragus Creek was I was really struck with the simplicity of your gear and your flies. And I, I was wondering if you could share kind of your your setup in your fly box uh, with folks. Sure. So, it, you know, as we all go through the path of fishing and you're learning, you always have the fear of never having the right flies. So when you really don't know what flies are going to happen or you need at any time, you end up carrying almost everything you own. And, uh, you know, so uh, I remember carrying green grape uh, dry flies in August, uh, encountering a trico hatch because I just didn't know any better. Okay. But I had them with me just in case I needed them. Uh, that's how much of a neophyte I was. And as I learned, it's like, well, wait a minute, green drakes aren't going to come off until next June. I don't need that box. Oh, I don't need this box. I don't need that box. And you, it's kind of like a teardrop, right? It, you're, you're real wide at the bottom and then you start to turn and come into the point. And <clears throat> once you acquire a lot of experience in fly fishing, you pretty much can predict most of what you will need in, in every fishery or with a little bit of investigation, you can come up with it pretty quick. And what I have found in steelhead fishing, and I'm going to say something that I've tried almost everything there is to try. You know, someone will come out with a new fly pattern and whatever. And, you know, there's, there's a bunch of books written on steelhead fishing and, uh, <clears throat> you know, they've got 450 fly patterns and so on and so forth. And I don't want to be negative to anybody, but most of the reason they do that is that they didn't put the fly patterns in there. They would have a pamphlet because you can't just write that much about what it takes to steelhead fish. And 
I fish basically with a lanyard. Okay, let me back up. So you, you need your rod, you need your reel, you need your line, and what you wear, okay? And then from there, you need a leader, you need an indicator if you're chucking and ducking, and you need some split shot, and you need your flats. And you're pretty much set to go. So I back myself up in my little pouch and my zipper on my waders with an extra indicator, an extra leader, extra split shot, and, um, you know, one of everything that I might need inside of that little pouch. And I tuck that away. And then I wear a lanyard. And I started wearing a lanyard in Montana because you boat fish, uh, you know, like on the Bighorn River, and you don't, you're not very far away from your boat. So you leave your, all your stuff in the boat and you take a little thing of flies and some tippet and you go fish. So, you know, adopting that, coming back here, I wear a lanyard. I've got three, what I call quick shots. Um, they're sold by frog here. What they really are are the little things that, um, your your earplugs come in when you're at shooting range. You know what I'm talking about? They look like a change purse. Yep. And I fill three sizes of split shot into that because I find, and by the way, I want to throw something up. I fish winged lead split shot. And I know that's controversial in two ways. I've had people tell me, well, winged split shot hang up on the bottom more. And I would say that's a figment of your imagination. And, you know, we would scientifically go to the river and prove it by just bring up two rods and start fishing and see who hangs up. And the purpose of wing split shot is to quickly remove or add weight as you encounter different fishing situations as you're moving up or down the system. So B, 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 and three I seems to get it done for me almost anywhere I fish in Steelhead Alley. Now, uh, so I have three of those. I've got two fly boxes. I, I use the Orvis or Morel foam fly boxes, and I burn a little hole with a coat hanger in the corner of it, and I put an old piece of fly line and put a loop on it and hang them off from my lanyard because time of getting in and out of stuff is is what causes you to catch more fish. The more your line's in the water, the more you catch fish. So I put them on the lanyard. It's real easy. And my tippet material on the on the tippet dispenser. And I carry I carry 4X. I seldom use it. It's mostly three and sometimes two. Two X in you know really high but um, not blown out water. You know, I'll, I'll divert for a second. The mistake that a lot of people make in reading the gauges on the internet is that the gauge, most of the time, is not telling you turbidity. So you can have a high water event. Normally, later in the season, after the, depends on how much rain you get, and it flushes, you know, all the dirt and stuff off the fields and whatever. And then your high water event later in the year can be epic fishing because one, the you know, fish feel more secure. They're laying out. Stuff's coming by them faster. They're going to react quicker. 
and it's up, you know they can't eat it if they can't see it. So they uh, don't go on those days because they believe that it's blown out. Unfortunately, there's no way to actually know unless you go. And uh, I've just made the decision that I'm going to go on the day that I think historically has taught me to go. And I've picked some days where nobody on the river, <laughs> tons of fish. I mean, I, I think I mentioned we fished two weeks ago before I went to Montana. Um, I fished about four hours, had 20 hookups, maybe caught, I don't know, 12 if I was lucky. Land, you know, landed about half and really nice fish, you know, 26 to 29 inches and uh, nobody there because they just aren't, you know, reading it correctly. Anyway, I, I got off in a tangent, but uh, that's kind of how I view it. Yeah. And so you've got the lanyard and then, you know, you're only fishing two or three patterns, right? So I fish mostly, okay, let, let me back up. If, if fish have low water conditions, that's a whole different game. When it's low, there's been lots of fishermen. <clears throat> they're bombing them with every bright colored thing. You need to go to a dark color. So you need to go to, to some nymphs, you know, small stoneflies, hare's ears, stuff like that. You'll catch fish on that stuff. And, you know, Carl Wexelman, a well-known guide up here, uh, he does his dry dropper in those conditions very successfully. And, uh, you know, occasionally he'll catch one on the dry fly. I just don't go fishing in those conditions because I don't have to, okay? Uh, I, I just wait until we get our first rain and then I go. So once you have good flows, I mean, I'm fishing blood dots which is the pattern, you know, that imitates an egg. And uh, I will fish that, uh, the, the albumin, or the major portion of the fly, is tied with egg glowbug material. And then I change the color of the dot just to shake it up a little bit with four colors. So I have Charisse, Golden Nugget, Apricot Supreme, which matches the um, yolk exactly when it's wet and then Charisse, chartreuse and golden nugget so uh, those are the four colors and then i fish um an abbreviated white zonker pattern that was codenamed by my eight-year-old son white death way back when he, he did a lot of fishing with me and it's called the White Death, White Zonker. And all it is is an abbreviation of the way it's tied. So it's uh, kind of sparse. It's uh, an inch and three quarters long, no weight on it. And um, blackhead, uh, orange um, tie-in at the, at the bend of the hook. And that's the pattern. It's, now, my patterns, I tie for speed. Because if you're not losing, you know, a dozen to three dozen flies on an outing, you know, a good long eight-hour outing, you're not really fishing. That's that's a, you're either being too timid or you're not getting on the bottom. You know, you're you're not hooking up fish because you're not doing that. Therefore, you're not breaking any off, and you're just not consuming the flies. So, you know, I want to be able to tie them, you know, quickly. 
And I'll say this, I use Danville flat waxed 210 denier thread because it also makes the fly much more durable. And therefore, if you have to use your forceps to get the fly out of the fish, you're not tearing it up and, you know, it just works better. Yeah, got it. And then in terms, do you generally fish a floating line and you're probably fishing what, something between a six and an eight weight, right? Yeah, so I've always fished an eight weight. Now, the reason is, um, you know, a seven weight to me is a tweener. Um, Lots of guys love them and I don't want to step on their thinking. Uh, And when you're trying to, you know, when you first get into the sport, okay, you, you go buy a fly rod, you go buy, let's say, a five weight. And back in my day, 300 bucks was a big deal. So you buy a $300 fly rod. And you're kind of afraid to tell your new wife that you spent $300 on a fly rod, right? And then you uh, decide to go steelhead fishing, and you realize that, man, that five weight just is being, like, <laughs> not going to, isn't going to work, and I need a bigger rod. Now I got to go not buy another rod. And, you know, it gets to the point where what do I buy? So I look at it then from the perspective, and fortunately I was able to do quite a bit of traveling. What what else am I going to maybe fish for that I need a bigger rod? And I'm looking at bonefish, and I'm looking at permit. So if I buy a seven weight to fish steelhead and permit, because a lot of guys fish seven weights for, for, for a bonefish, but I get a you know, 30 plus inch permit on there. Um, I just think you're less of an advantage than an eight weight. There's a little more to it. Okay. So I decided to go with eight weight. What I find with the eight weight, and, and there's not that much difference between the two rods. I mean, there is a difference, but not that much. And what, what I most, mostly found was, you know, in wind, I can cast an A-weight better into the wind. I can throw more weight easily with that rod. And there's just a little more, I don't know what the word would be, tenacity in the fighting capability of the rod on on fish. So, um, you know, as you gain skill, those who have skill overcome deficiencies with their skill. They adjust their casting stroke or, you know, put a little little more oomph into it or whatever. But over a lot of time, you know, it kind of wears you out. Uh, But for the intermediate, um, you know, they're sometimes at a disadvantage when if they had an eight weight, they would be fishing much better than using a six weight as an example. And um, so that's what I do. Now, a lot of my friends are seven weights. And we talk about it all the time, you know, and then when they break one off, I laugh at them, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed part one of our interview with Jeff. Stay tuned for part two, where we pick up where we left off and talk about steelhead tactics and Jeff's time in the fly fishing industry. And remember, folks, if you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a rating and review in the podcatcher of your choice. Tight lines, everybody.